It's not the job of EU decision makers to make the pesticide sector happy. It's the job of EU decision makers to come up with a good legislation that helps us to organize a transition to sustainable farming that is adapted to future challenges. What are pesticides and GMOs and how are they linked to each other? Is it true that GMOs reduce the use of pesticides? What is the difference between old and new GMOs? And at the moment, can we know if a food is GMO-free by reading its label? What are the best ways to make our farming methods more resilient, for example to face droughts and floods? We will answer these questions and many more in this podcast episode. So let's begin this journey. Locale. Local. Shock. Local. Slow Food, the podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to Slow Food, the podcast that takes you on a journey through the beauty and complexity of good, clean and fair food systems. I'm Valentina Gritti, I'm your host and a Slow Food Youth Network activist. We are back with the podcast after a short summer break and we are now fully charged with energy and excited to share with you this new episode. On our podcast, we meet change makers around the world who are working towards a more sustainable food system and promote a slow lifestyle. This episode is part of the series Slow Food Goes Brussels, where my co-host Alice Poiron dissects the political debates linked to the greatest challenges food and agriculture are facing. Today we want to find out more about pesticides use and GMOs in European agriculture with some science-based data, news extracts, and by making clarity on the current legislation as well as on possible alternatives. Alice, over to you. So many of the foods we eat every day are sprayed again and again with pesticides before landing on our table. And we all learned over the years, one scandal after another, that this is no good news, either for our health or the environment. But what most people don't know is the tight connection between pesticides and GMOs. For decades, they have been sustaining a system that is based on industrial monocultures and highly dependent on chemicals. Let me introduce you to that very toxic couple. To my right, you have pesticides, which are basically poisons. They are designed to kill organisms that affect a plant's growth, like fungi, insects or weeds. To my left, you have GMOs, which are living beings like plants, animals and microorganisms whose DNA has been changed in a laboratory in a way that doesn't occur naturally. Both have in common the serious risks they pose to biodiversity, which they tend to wipe out, and human health, which they tend to intoxicate. Bayer has lost a third appeal against US court verdicts that awarded damages to customers blaming their cancers on use of its glyphosate-based weed killers. New findings about genetically modified foods. <laughs> They're made from organisms by altering DNA. GMO labeling isn't required in the US, despite worries about the potential health risks. Late today, a California jury awarded nearly $300 million to a former school groundskeeper who sued Monsanto, claiming its weed killers, including Roundup, gave him non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Scientists say the bee population is endangered by pesticides and global warming. Kenyan farmer Samuel Kyoko is worried that his livelihood could be undermined by the government's sudden embrace of genetically modified crops. And yes, 
the agroindustry promises that both pesticides and GMOs are needed for sustainable farming. Among other promises, GMOs were originally supposed to reduce the use of chemicals in agriculture. But this promise could not be kept. As a matter of fact, pesticide use has boomed worldwide since GMOs were introduced back in the 90s, and the vast majority of GMOs grown are to be resistant to herbicides. Today, the US, Brazil and Argentina are the top GMO-producing countries where pesticides are also used in tremendous quantities. GMOs and pesticides are linked by many ties, but one is particularly striking. They are both sold by the same multinationals. You heard me. These companies, which are telling us that GMOs can help reduce pesticides, are actually the same ones producing pesticides and selling them to farmers. I don't know about you, but such contradictions make me want to dig deeper. In Europe, a small number of GM crops have been authorized for production. But because EU legislation says it is mandatory to label them as such on supermarket shelves, consumers rightfully rejected them due to the danger they represented. This consumer rejection of GMO led to most European countries actually banning the production of GMOs. In fact, only Spain and Portugal produce GMOs in the EU. This has been a big bust for the agro-industry, which had to completely rebrand their GM merchandise in order to convince Europeans to grow and eat them. This is where new GMOs, or new genomic techniques as policymakers call them, enter the scene. And guess what? They are said to have the same magical powers as the old generation of GMOs. They would allow farmers to farm in a more sustainable way, for example, by drastically reducing their pesticide use. As the European debate is raging right now over how the future of agriculture will look like, such promise is attractive. Less pesticide use means less ecosystem damage. Yes, in theory. But what's the real story here? This chemical romance between pesticides, new GMOs and industry profits stinks. It is time to investigate. This summer, I had the opportunity to talk about this with Mutu Schimpf, policy officer at Friends of the Earth Europe, who explained to me what was wrong with GMOs, old and new. It's a highly disruptive technology. It's not natural at all. And we really need to know what's happening <laughs> in the DNA of a plant. And is it only what we want to do? So also our effects that we haven't fully understand how we would interact with nature, how we would interact with other species and what would be the impact of them. And what's the link with pesticides? I mean, the current GMOs that are mainly grown in South and North America, they have two main characteristics. Either they can survive if they're sprayed with a pesticide, so all the natural plants are killed and only the soybean or the rapeseed is surviving. This is very convenient for farmers. <laughs> but if you use the same pesticide over and over again, at one point, weeds are developing and resistant, so the farmers are spraying more and more and start using other pesticides. So actually, what we noticed is since they have been introduced in the US or in Canada and Brazil, the use of pesticide has multiplied. Let's take the example of the infamous Roundup. This glyphosate pesticide was developed by Monsanto in the 1970s, and soon after, Monsanto began to sell GMO soybean and corn to farmers. These Roundup-ready GMO seeds were designed to be tolerant to the effects of Roundup, meaning that farmers could spray their entire fields with glyphosate without killing the crops. 
It made the use of Roundup a logical decision for farmers because it simplified dealing with weeds. In the decades that followed, glyphosate became the most widely used pesticide in the world. And did it help farmers? I mean, in Europe, there's a huge reluctance and about GMOs in food and in farming. So there were attempts to grow GM seeds in Europe, but it was not really picked up by farmers and the plants didn't really develop. And also they are controlled by a handful of corporations and most of them are also the biggest pesticide producers. So it's a package. So they sell the seeds and they sell the pesticide with it. And it actually didn't help farmers to improve their income. It didn't help farmers to actually have a transition to sustainable food system. <clears throat> Instead, they remain or become even more dependent from a handful of uh, pesticide corporations who can prescribe what they do on their farms. The old generation of GMOs failed. Noted. And what about new GMOs such as CRISPR-Cas, a technique that we first heard about during the COVID-19 pandemic? Could they help reduce pesticide use? We hear this again and again and again. But if you go a bit deeper, I mean... First of all, we have the same characteristics. In the pipeline, we have also herbicide-resistant um, plants, so the same will happen. <laughs> and also, if they would manage the researchers and the pesticide companies to modify plants in a way that they would be resistant against some pests, again, there is a natural development. If you have a resistant plant, <laughs> the diseases will adapt to the plant and start trying breaking it, and then very soon the farmers would start using other pesticides again. And yet, many alternatives exist and all revolve around one simple principle, making use of nature's tools. Methods like crop rotation and soil building methods, for instance, have long proven their high efficiency in keeping crops pest-free. Take biocontrol, for instance, which is not as scary as it sounds. Think of bio in terms of biology and control as in maintenance. Essentially, biocontrol is using a pest's natural enemy, like a specific insect, to repel the pests. And it works. But I will let the experts speak. I talked with Bosse Dalgren, a slow food farmer from Sweden who now owns a farm in Scotland. He explained to me how he uses nature to fight off pests without any chemical help. Uh, I don't fight the wasps. Wasps are very good to keep uh, insects away. And uh, then when you don't spray, you get more insects because there is a balance in the insects. So uh, there are a lot of predator insects, the ground beetles. They are quite vicious, they eat anything. And then you have ladybirds and there's quite a few spiders predator insects that keep uh, pests down. And then you have a rotation in what you grow. That's quite important too. So you don't, today we, we are so specialized. So you're a dairy farm or you, you have beef cattle or you grow wheat, you grow barley, rapeseed. It's is to be that specialized and they want you to grow more legume, but you can only grow them every seven year. So it's uh, this to follow nature. You follow the laws in nature. When we use pesticides, we kill off insects, microlife and so on. 
which means that you have uh, bacterias in the soil, lot of bacterias in the soil that uh, need to be fed because they bring down nitrogen from the air. They want us farmers to buy in nitrogen every year. As Bosse pointed out, pesticides can deteriorate the environment in the long term, contaminating groundwater, soil and its fertility, and even the air. They can harm other beneficial soil organisms, insects and plants, and can be toxic to animals like fish and birds. The thing is, with a small-scale farming, it's much easier to keep pests and weeds under control instead of getting rid of uh, the weed, for example, you feed it to and you feed it yeah feed it to animals and get food out of it so then you produce more and uh, with the pest is that a lot of this ecosystem they feed us if you get down to insect level or bacteria level earthworms and so on they produce something we can eat in the other end So, and you produce more nutrients per hectare because we can't live on carrots and wheat. That's totally impossible. And with the wildlife, you get predators, all stages from big ones to small ones. So you keep a balance in it while your biodiversity gets sky high. the European Union is about to take some critical decisions on both pesticides and GMOs. Firstly, our ministers and members of the European Parliament are going to decide whether they approve a target to reduce the use of pesticides by 50% by 2030, and in parallel, whether they want to approve the deregulation of new GMOs, and therefore that new GMOs end up in our fields and our place in the next years, untested and unlabeled, or not. Bonjour à tous, merci d'être venu à cette petite action concernant les nouveaux OGM. Nous avons réussi à collecter plus de 420 000 signatures et je pense que ces signatures sont un signe très clair envers la Commission européenne qui souhaite déréglementer ces nouveaux OGM. It's 420,000 signatures asking you to maintain strong safety assessments, traceability and labeling of new GMOs. The people who want to keep pesticides on the market are the same people who want to deregulate GMOs and want to keep them on the market as well. I'm an organic farmer since 1988 and I know farmers don't need GMOs. What you just heard is an excerpt of a video that was filmed earlier this year in Brussels. A large coalition of NGOs, Slow Food included, handed over their petition to representatives of the European Commission. A petition that was signed by hundreds of thousands of European citizens who demand that new GMOs remain strictly regulated. But industry lobbying convinced the Commission to go in a different direction. In the beginning of July, the European Commission published this new proposal to completely deregulate the new generation of GMOs. So what we're seeing for the vast majority, no rule would apply it anymore. So you could 
um, sell them, you could grow them without any safety checks if there is a risk for human health or is there a risk for environment or for animal health. Nobody would know where it would be grown. <laughs> So there would be zero transparency. It would be impossible to trace them along the chain because they also want to um, take uh, the producers of the GMOs out of the obligation to deliver a test kit. And also consumers would completely lose the right to choose um, if they want to eat GMOs or not because they also want to delete the labeling. The current situation of GMOs in Europe is um, it's possible to sell GM food, but the food must be labeled. And this resulted that consumers decided they don't want to eat it. And so the supermarkets faced them out. So you don't find GM food in the supermarkets, but it's not a political ban. It's just a market rejection of consumers and supermarkets to say, why should they sell products that consumers don't want to buy? And now this was a real barrier for the biotech companies to sell their seeds. And now they really managed to convince the commission um, to suggest to delete labeling and any kind of transparency. The same applies for farmers. They might know if a seed is GM, but they would not know if their neighbor farmers, for example, would grow a GM maize or whatever, a GM rapeseed. And also quite often farmers work together. So if you harvest on one field and then you come to the next field, the farmer would also not know if before the machine harvested a field with GM weed or any other GM crop. So it would also contaminate the harvest. And how did such a proposal end up being successful? Like what happened behind closed doors to convince the commission to move forward with it? I mean, I fully understand that researchers get excited about new GMOs because they got new tools that they never had before. And the problem is that our decision makers, especially in the European Commission, they were listening to these researchers and take their claims as a fact. But if a researcher gets excited about a new tool, first of all, it doesn't mean it works in practice. So what you do in a laboratory doesn't need to mean if you plant uh, the seed outside on a bigger scale, that they actually they work. And what we've seen, all the promises for the existing GMOs and for the new GMOs, most of them have never materialized. Yeah, it's These are claims. So if you hear they are use good for pesticide use, this is a claim, but there's zero evidence for it. And I think the problem is really that the European Commission, the proposal looks as it would be written by the biotech industry. They haven't taken up a single point, a single argument from people and organizations, consumer groups, farmer groups, environmental organizations who are critical about it. It's like copy-pasted from the industry. And this is really worrying. And this is why we now need our ministers to step in. This is why we need um, the members of the European Parliament to step in to say, no, it's not the job of EU decision makers to make the pesticide sector happy. It's the job of EU decision makers to come up with a good legislation that helps us to organize a transition to sustainable farming that is adapted to future challenges like the climate crisis, like the biodiversity loss, and it's not to make a very tiny industry sector happy. A tiny sector that generates a lot of big, deceptive claims. Once again, industry lobbyists are trying to frame their new genetic technologies as the silver bullet that is going to help agriculture adapt to extreme weather conditions and generate less greenhouse gas emissions. That sounds amazing! On paper. But like you will hear Bosse and Mute explain, facts contradict these assumptions. With a GMO, you're locked up in one system, so you must buy new 
seeds every year. And they have to top up. So they have to follow what happened in the climate and so on. The thing is, the climate isn't the same over the planet. We have a lot of different climate zones. And I can say every parish have their own little microclimate. So you can, therefore, you can't take one thing and have that go all over the world. The farming sector is producing a lot of greenhouse gas emissions and it's challenging to reduce them. But the main source of greenhouse gas emissions is deforestation because we import a lot of feed from mainly from South America for our cattle, our pigs, our poultry. And how would a breeding technology stop the demand for feed and uh, our contribution um, to fuel the deforestation in South America. I think we need to change the system. We need to think how we raise animals and how we can reduce meat consumption and how we have more sustainable animal farming sector. This is the driver. The second one is fertilizer use. The production of fertilizers is also producing another greenhouse gas emission, which is highly damaging um, for the climate. And it's a farming model. I mean, Farming is depending on seeds developed or controlled by a handful of pesticide corporations and they rely on predictability. So you know what is happening on the farm, so you control it with pesticides and fertilizers. But if you talk about adaptation to extreme weather conditions, it's the contrary. You need to have a very flexible, locally adapted way of farming because you might have floods. Now, as we have here seen in Belgium in, in, in July, or like the people in Austria and Slovenia are suffering from, and you might have droughts in other areas of Europe, and you never know how the weather would be. So what is actually needed is a very diverse farming system, so you can harvest anything in case of a flood, or in case of an extreme drought, or in case of whatever kind of, of storms. So it's a contrary. Instead of relying on highly industrial seed, we need the contrary. We need a diverse thing that is adapted to local conditions where local communities can think what is the best way <laughs> to maybe next summer you also have a flood in parts of Italy or you have like last summer, you have again extreme drought. And you need, we need to think how you can harvest something if you never know how there will be in four weeks time. Like Mutu said, we need a system change but this would be far less profitable for the industry. If farming communities were to take control back over what they grow and the way they grow them, biotechnological companies would probably collapse. If the EU adopts the deregulation of new GMOs, European farmers, food producers, retailers and consumers would no longer be able to reject GM products and opt for GM-free choices. We'd lose our freedom to choose what we eat. Sadly, many countries around the world are already in this situation like in Argentina, for instance. I can uh, remember, I, I was a little girl, but uh, when I used to go to holidays, I see the, the, the camp and it was uh, full of horses and cows, different kind of cultives. But uh, right now, only three. Soybeans, uh, cotton, maize, corn, you can find everywhere. Currently, 36% uh, of productive land is in the hand of the richest 1% of landowner. 
Last week, I spoke with the slow food activist Karina Ocampo, who lives in the north of Buenos Aires, and she told me how the extreme use of pesticides and GMOs had affected her country over the years. Crops in Argentina, like I said, we can find soybeans, corn, cotton, rice, other genetic, genetically modified crops, GMOs. And in 2020, uh, in the middle of the pandemic, people from science and company called Bioceres developed the first transgenic wheat resistant to ammonium glufosinate. You know, uh, glyphosate, glyphosate is dangerous, so glufosinate is uh, 500 times more toxic than glyphosate. And there's now in, in our bread. Uh, we are consumed without uh, knowing if it has or not. We don't have uh, the idea what we are eating. We can go to, to buy some organic food, for example, probably don't consume GMOs, but we are not uh, sure about if they are uh, being producing in, in lands which are close to another transgenic lands. So it's very difficult. Back in 1996, Argentina was the first country to cultivate GMO crops, which were approved and imposed on the population without going through the Congress or any type of voting. Over 20 years later, the promises that were made to eradicate poverty and hunger thanks to GMOs have completely failed, while food insecurity in the country has steadily increased and pesticide use has risen by 1,500%. And they are contaminating our water. We have a river called Paraná, and they found that they are full of toxins. Not only glyphosate, they are a mix of toxins that are forbidden in Europe, but they are still using here. So I was in, in a part of this country called Entre Rios. This is a province. They are doing, trying to, to change the, their laws because uh, people were dying, child were dying. So we, we have people, <laughs> doctors, who, who trying to repair that. But it's so difficult because the, the national laws is against with this. And we are fighting every time because we know we are in dangerous. Not only risk is in danger. Not only does GMO agriculture threaten human health and nature, but it also drives the concentration of power over food in the hands of very few actors, with the help of seed patents. Patents are intellectual property rights which are granted by public authorities for technical inventions. They provide exclusive rights to the title holders as to how their inventions are used, which effectively creates artificial monopoly rights. Right now, only four seed companies control more than 60% of the seed market. I'm sure you will recognize some names like Bayer, Corteva or Syngenta. Yes, you're right, they are the same that the very few companies that control most of the pesticide market worldwide. Coincidence? 
The last two decades have seen a huge rise in applications for patents on genetic techniques and their products, both in Europe and globally, restricting access to seeds and crops for plant breeders and for farmers. But if there is one thing that the Slow Food Network of brave small-scale farmers can teach us, is that there is always room for resistance. Is it possible to farm without pesticides and GMOs and make a good living? The answer is yes. Oh yes, oh yes, you can, you can, absolutely. The Swedish government put a horrible tax on you. I, one year I paid 125% of my income in tax. So that's the problem. But the money comes in. You can sell your products. And with dairy, uh, we had a small dairy that uh, cooperative 25 farmers went together and made a good profit. So the dairy paid for veterinary costs for these who had an artificial insemination. They paid for that and they paid for a lot of the things for the farmers. But the Swedish government didn't like that. So we had to be incorporated with Arla. And today all these farms are gone. Not one is still existing. So there, there you have it. It's political decision. It's not about if you can live on it or not, because you can live on it. But for farmers to succeed in their transition towards sustainable agriculture, they need public support. And we cannot always trust our governments to look after our interests. No. Most of the time, they need their citizens to push them in the right direction. We can do a lot. Because, I mean, I think we all agree we need a real transition to our food systems. And... GM crops, this is a farming model. This is a model of industrial farming with high pesticide use, with high fertilizer use. The contrary, what we want and what is needed for nature, what is needed for this planet, and what is also needed to have healthy, sustainable, locally adapted food. So what we can do is, I mean, you can reach out to your decision makers in your in your region. You can reach out to your member of European Parliament. They also have local constituencies where coming from. You can reach out to ministers, you can reach out to journalists, you can share things on social media. I mean, it's a really bad proposal, but at the moment it's just a proposal. This is not <laughs> entering into force as it is, so there's a lot of way uh, to improve it or to stop it. For example, the council could reject the proposal and say it's not bad enough, because in the current um, GMO legislation, it's possible for member states to ban the cultivation of GMOs on the territory. And this is also not foreseen in the commission proposal anymore. So they really want to get rid of this too. And even for this new GMOs, they are a tiny bit regulated. <laughs> there is basic information shared. Even for those GMOs, the commission doesn't want to allow uh, national governments to ban them. And I think this is a really interesting argument because in some countries, you have a quite strong opinion <laughs> that consumers don't want GMOs. And then the government also often tends to follow and say, okay, This is a national right of us, and we don't. We want to keep it. And about this, there is one very concrete action that any EU citizen can take, and it is to join the Say Goodbye to Toxics campaign to put pressure on our political leaders to adopt the new EU pesticide regulation, which will be voted in November. As you heard during this episode, the reach of industrial lobbies is wide, but it can be countered. We need your help. The more we will be to shout out our support to green agriculture, the more difficult it will be for our decision makers to ignore us. And remember, they are giants, but we are millions.
Thank you, Alice Poiron, for hosting this episode. If you want to be updated about current advocacy topics in Europe around food, we suggest you follow Slow Food Europe Twitter. You will find the link in the podcast description. If you like this episode, remember to share it with your friends and give us a good rating or review on your favorite podcasting platform. If you are interested in sponsoring the podcast or if you have any suggestions for us, reach out to podcast at slowfood.it or via our Telegram group. This is Valentina Gritti and you have listened to Slow Food, the podcast.